almost uh, 80 years ago, in 1938, the U.S. Congress uh, passed a bill which was called the Fair Labor and Practice Act, the Fair Labor and Practice Act, and it affected many lives. In fact, still today, it affects millions and millions of people because for the first time in history, it set a minimum wage. Believe it or not, the minimum wage in 1938 was 25 cents an hour. You can probably find more than that in between your seat cushions in your couch later today. I remember my first job. It was in the cafeteria, Pacific Lutheran University in, uh, near Tacoma, Washington. And I remember the minimum wage was $5.70. It's much more than that now uh, in Washington. But I'm sure uh, many of us can recall times when it was much less. But back in 1938, the law that was passed was basically based on two main principles, that every worker should uh, deserve or every worker should receive a minimum wage, and two, there must be some representation, some semblance of equal pay for equal work. Well, what is equal? What is equal pay uh, for equal work? It raised then, it still raises today, questions of fairness. What is fair? Who determines what is fair? Well, as we continue in Matthew's gospel, you can turn to chapter 20. And there, Jesus, we will see, tells a parable. And it's, uh, in a very interesting and unique way, relates to these points and these questions. And the larger subject of fairness. Some believe, in fact, this is the most controversial parable that Jesus ever told. He doesn't shy away from the subject of fairness. Fairness. And yet this story has very powerful, powerful implications for Christians, for those who will serve him. How we see our Lord, how we see our calling and purpose in his kingdom. What are the reasons and motivations behind our laboring for his kingdom and for his glory, for his purposes? So listen now to God's word, Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last Up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last workers only worked an hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day. The scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Unfair. Unfair. That's the word, that's the thought that very naturally comes to a person's mind in response to hearing this parable. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is after. He wants to expose an attitude and a lens through which people are viewing him, viewing God, viewing the people around them, viewing their service and their motive in his vineyard, in his kingdom. This is a story at the heart of which is about an attitude or a lens through which God's people may be laboring, living, serving, worshiping. And I would offer to you every day that we awake, we are putting on a set of lenses, a set of spectacles, an attitude through which we are worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord, and living for the Lord. And Jesus is revealing a dangerous set of spectacles here that one can put on. We might call it a wage-based lens, a wage-based attitude. It's seeing life through the lens of fairness. Now, we are taught at a young age that fairness matters. Fairness is important. Now, you can observe it very easily in children at a young age. If you gather around a group of children, I've done it many times, and you begin to distribute gifts or candy, what inevitably happens very quickly? What do the children do? They very quickly start to turn their head to the right. They turn their head to the left. They want to measure, how much did that person get? Did she get more than me? Did she get less than me? Where's the equality here? Where's the fairness? Happens very quickly. But, but it's not just children. Adults desire fairness too. And yet often the lens of fairness turns into feelings of envy, jealousy, and bitterness. The thoughts begin to emerge in a person. I work harder than that person. I work much harder than that person. Why do they make more than me? I give much time and energy in service to the Lord, yet why is my life full of so much more hardship than that of my neighbor? We desire fairness in part because it gives a sense of control, a sense of order, a way to measure life, even if it is a sense of assurance that is a false one. But what happens when divine goodness and divine grace trumps human fairness? You get this parable. You get the parable Jesus just told. Grace upsets man's natural thinking because grace goes beyond productivity. Grace will go beyond appearance, beyond accomplishments. It will go beyond people's failures in their lives. Jesus says the last will be first. And the first, last. Well, that's not how a wage-based society works. You get what you deserve. The last are last and the first are first because you deserve it. Well, Jesus is pointing out the danger, the real danger of following him through the lens of what a person deserves through fairness. Now, only Matthew's gospel tells this this parable and contains this story. 
And when you come to chapter 20, as we've marched through Matthew, it can seem a bit unrelated, a bit in isolation from the rest. But in fact, it sits in an all-important context in the unfolding of this gospel. It's not only the last story that Jesus tells before he enters Passion Week, as we read in the next chapter, the triumphal entry, Jesus here is preparing the disciples for his departure. He's going to near the cross, the resurrection, his ascension. What an all-important truth that the disciples need to understand about their calling into the vineyard. What's going to motivate them as Jesus departs? But furthermore, Jesus' story comes in response to a question. And it's a question that Peter had asked back in chapter 19. If you look back just briefly at chapter 19, you recall this is a story of the rich young ruler. Jesus had interacted with the rich young ruler, and what did he do? The rich young ruler walked away from the Lord Jesus, unwilling to give up the idol of his riches. He walked away from the Lord, and he kept everything. Unwilling to give it up. In following, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who then can be saved, it's asked. With with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then what does Peter say? Look, verse 27 of chapter 19. Look, with an emphasis. Look, kind of, look here, Jesus. We have left everything and followed you. Here's the question. What then will we have? That's the question that prompts the story. Think about it for a moment. The rich young ruler walked away from the Lord Jesus and kept everything for himself. Peter has chosen, along with the disciples, to follow Jesus and give up everything. What then will we have? Jesus so graciously does not chide or rebuke Peter. If you look at the end of chapter 19, he ensures that indeed, Peter, you will receive great reward in this life and eternal life. But he goes on to tell a story because there's something behind Peter's question. There is an attitude, there is a lens, a way of thinking that is very dangerous and troubling. And it moves the Lord to explain the danger of turning his grace, his calling, into a matter of fairness or personal expectations or the expectations that a whole congregation might have or a sense of entitlement. I think the question that Peter asks back in chapter 19, verse 27, speaks volumes about the mindset and attitude that we can carry that can creep up in our lives as we serve, as we worship, as we give ourselves to the Lord, what then will we have? Because what's behind that question? What's in it for me? What is in it for me? What do I get out of this? Am I not deserving? Am I not owed a certain result for my work and service? And so Jesus, so wisely, so masterfully and graciously, is going to reorient 
Peter's thinking and all of our thinking. And he does that by starting where we ought to start every new day with the grace that God has lavished upon his people. He is gracious to call people into his vineyard and into his kingdom. And so Jesus tells the story, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So understand, this is about life in the kingdom. It's not first about someone being saved in the 11th hour or degrees of rewards that there may be implications there. At the heart of it is about life in the kingdom and laboring in the vineyard of God. And he uses this picture of vineyards and grapes, something well-known, an important crop in Israel's life. I want you to notice how much the grace of of the master is emphasized by the repeated language of the master went out. You see it in verse 1. The master went out. Verse 3, going out about the third hour. Verse 5, going out again about the sixth hour. Verse 6, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. He's going out again and again. He goes out by himself He goes early in the morning, he goes often, he goes throughout the day, he goes even in the last hour, the 11th hour. All of that indeed adds up to teach us about the great pursuing, constant love that God has in calling people to himself. And we mustn't forget that. God is about going out and calling and recruiting people for his kingdom purposes. But there's further background to the story that is helpful in Jesus' day. Once a year in Israel was harvest time. The soil was prepared in the spring. Pruning took place in the summer. And harvest came in uh, the fall time, September. Time to harvest the grapes. And in those days, throughout towns and villages, there was what was called the agora, similar to the marketplace, the town or city center. And in that place would gather laborers. These are day workers. These are people who did not have regular ongoing work. Oftentimes these were people on the lowest rung socially and economically. Oftentimes living from day to day, a subsistence living. They would often go without work. They didn't have the benefits of continuing labor. And so you see the painted picture of desperation within the story. Some are waiting, we're told, to be hired throughout the whole day. They're willing to work just for an hour or two. So these are people willing to live from day to day on charity. And if they did not work, they did not eat. So when an opportunity came, they seized it. They jumped on that opportunity. And Jesus says, a man, a master went out early in the morning to hire laborers. Labor would normally begin around 6 a.m. The day was divided into four divisions, 6 to 9, 9 to noon, noon to 3, 3 to 6. 6 a.m., the first workers are hired. But you notice in Jesus' telling of the story that these first workers, they had an agreement with the master, a particular agreement In fact, even though they are, in a sense, desperate, knowing the background of the story, 
they would not work until they had an agreement, until that agreement was made. I think very likely Jesus is echoing back to Peter's question in the previous chapter. What, will, what then will we have? What do we get? What's in it for me? Uh, that word agree in verse 2 communicates formality. There's a contract, written or verbal. There's a contract. The early workers are the only ones we're told who enter this kind of agreement in the story. And the commentators emphasize this. Richard Linsky, for example, says that this is central to the parable because the second, third, fourth wave of hired laborers who come later in the story, they don't enter that kind of agreement. It's the first workers. They want to know, what do I get? What's in it for me? But here's what all the workers of the story have in common. The master did not need to hire any of them. He could have gone to another town. He could have gone to another village, another marketplace, hired other workers. They're all in his vineyard because the master went out in search of laborers. And he called them. He hired them. Life and service in the kingdom of God. It's not the result of a contract between equal parties. There is one sovereign. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, You did not choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that would indeed abide. The Lord called you. We need to know that again this day. The Lord has called you to himself and into his kingdom to serve him. Uh, there's a wonderful story about Calvin Coolidge, the uh, 30th president of the United States, nicknamed Silent Cal, apparently a man with fewer uh, words. Uh, but before he became president, he was a lawyer, and then he began to work his way up uh, state politics in Massachusetts. And one of the positions he ran for and won was mayor of Northampton, Mass. I'm more familiar with Northampton because of Jonathan Edwards, and I'm sure many of you are as well. I haven't yet been there, I hope to see it someday. Well, the day after his election, after his victory, a man approached him and said, uh, Calvin, I read in the paper this morning that you have been elected mayor. I just want to let you know that I did not vote for you. <laughs> I did not vote for you. And Calvin simply responded, that's okay, somebody did. Somebody did. And that's important to remember. God has voted, and God has called you. That's the most important vote. That's the most important vote and call. It's from the Lord. It's not first to a position. It is first to himself, to be the man of God, the woman of God, the child of God, where you are, to serve him. The church is not volunteers serving God and giving to God what he cannot get elsewhere. The church are laborers, disciples, saints, and serving and giving and worshiping is a privileged position. It's a privileged place. It's the result of his call, the result of his grace in our lives. And Jesus wants to communicate that. That's at the heart of the story. The extravagant grace of this master, you see it continue in verses 3 through 7, or emphasized in those verses. 
The master goes out the third hour, 9 a.m., calls more workers. Again, the sixth and ninth hours, noon and three, calls more. Even the eleventh hour, he goes out again, 5 p.m., toward the end of the workday. He finds others and says, why do you stand here idle? Because no one has hired us. And he said, you go into the vineyard too. Even those no one else would likely hire, those who appear least productive, least helpful, least able, God will call. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace and how it is distributed and worked in people's lives and in his kingdom. Because he sees people we do not see. He will choose people that we will overlook. He will recruit people that we often will think unfit. God goes after. And the controversy arises because of those last workers. Those hired at five, the eleventh hour. At the end of the day, according to verse eight, the owner and the foreman, they call the workers together. But the master does something uncustomary. Normally, he would begin to pay those who labored all day first. But he starts at the end. He begins with the last. Verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius, an entire day's wage, for an hour or so of work. Wow. Jesus is communicating the grace of the owner and the master. This is a gracious master. The master could have made this a private matter, it seems to me, but Jesus is wanting to make a point publicly. The workers see what's been distributed. They have seen what has happened. He could have paid them all privately, it seems, but they have seen what has happened. And those labored all day, those who labored all day, when they saw the generosity of this owner, they thought to themselves, and we are told this, that if he got an entire denarius for one hour or two hours of work, we will certainly receive much more. He is gracious. Wow! They received a whole denarius for an hour of work. What will we get? Five, six times that? We worked all day. But verse 10 says they also received a denarius. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day. Well, the all-day laborers take a very dangerous step. And I think it is a step every believer, every Christian worker, every pastor, every leader has made in their lives. They took their eyes off the master and his calling and they placed it on other people. Those around them. What did they do? They began to compare. It's been said that comparing often leads to coveting. Coveting often leads to complaining. And complaining often leads to joyless labor. So true. Comparing to coveting, coveting to complaining, which is what they do, to a joyless labor. C.S. Lewis has uh, wonderful words in Mere Christianity on this. 
He says that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition or comparison is gone, pride is gone. It's interesting how that takes hold. Well, there's a strong warning here from Jesus about appealing to God for fairness in our lives if, as if we're deserving of something. So masterful in his teaching here from Jesus. Not one person in the story was treated unfairly. Verse 13, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Isn't it telling that the only people who end up grumbling are the ones who entered into that formal agreement? What's in it for me? Verse 14 and 15, take what belongs to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? I I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And so for us, as laborers in God's kingdom, in God's vineyard, the question each day is not, what is in this day for me? But rather, what's in this day for you, Lord? That's hard. Not how can I benefit from this day? What do I get out of this day? But how can I benefit others and celebrate the the grace of God at work in the lives of those around me? Some powerful takeaways. God does not owe his people anything. For their worship, their service, their labor, their giving, God will be indebted to no one. At the end of a day, at the end of a week, at the end of a life of worship and service, we should be like the servants of Luke chapter 17, who after hearing one command after another from their master, simply responded, we're unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. What is to shape my attitude, my countenance, my joy? Not what I get, not what others have, but the wonderful grace, God's calling in our own lives. Peter's question, back in chapter 19, verse 27, what then will we have? I think Jesus realized that this needed a further explanation an explanation beyond simple rewards, as, as powerful, as important as that is in the biblical teaching. Jesus speaks about it at the end of chapter 19. But Jesus is about to depart. Peter's going to take a lead role in the early church along with the other disciples. And it's going to come at a great cost. Persecution, opposition, trouble. They are going to need a motive that would not run dry. And we need that too. And that is the grace, and that is the calling of God upon a person's life. When I first read this parable, going back uh, in in study in preparation for this uh, this week, the the verse that came to my mind was Psalm 84.10. It's the one that says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's enough. 
I'm in. I'm in the kingdom of God. I'm in his vineyard. He's called me. He knows my name. He's seeking to use me anywhere, Lord. I'm pleased to be a doorkeeper in the house, in your house. Then dwell in the tents of wickedness. Lord, I'm not after position, attention, entitlement. I'm glad to be in your kingdom, to be your servant, to labor in your vineyard. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your calling in each of our lives. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the depth of your mercy. We pray, O Lord, that your word would sink deeply into our hearts, that by your spirit, Lord, not by our own mere work, but by your power and your spirit, by the truth of your word, that you would daily reorient our own attitude, our own countenance, Lord, that we would be serving, worshiping, laboring for you um, in response to the pure and wonderful grace that you have lavished upon us, that you have called us to yourself to serve you. Lord, that is more than enough to fill us overflowing with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, may we celebrate the victories of others, the giftings of others, the way that you use others. Free us, Lord, from serving even ourselves, that we might serve you more purely, that we might be used as instruments to build and strengthen the body of Christ, those around us. Help us, Lord, to accept the place, the lot that you have given to us, whatever it might be, that we can simply uh, be used by you for the building of your kingdom. And Lord, we, th- we thank you and we express our gratitude in our hearts for calling us into your kingdom. It is a glorious kingdom, Lord. Help us to be uh, obedient, loving servants, laborers in it uh, for uh, the glory and the honor of your name. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.